take a leave this morning so I could actually get on my knee and, and make it through that. So thanks. He's an EMT, advanced EMT, so he knew I needed help. So I appreciate it. Okay. Would you please take your copy of the Word of God? Let's look at Esther chapter 6 this morning. Esther chapter 6. My allergies are really kicking in today, and my eyes are watering, and if I yawn during music, they water more, so I did that. Not that I was bored with the music. I have to be careful what I say today, don't I? All right, if you're there, I'm going to begin this way. There is a personality disorder called narcissism, and narcissism encompasses In other words, what I'm going to tell you is uh, if I looked at the pathology of somebody that's a narcissist or if I look at them from a clinical standpoint, this is what we would find in their life. Narcissism encompasses a hunger for appreciation or admiration. In other words, this person wants to be appreciated. They want to be admired. A desire to be the center of everyone's attention and an expectation of special treatment reflecting perceived higher status. In other words, they think within themselves that they're above everybody else, and because they're that way, they perceive that everybody ought to honor them and respect them. All right, so now we're talking about what what we would say would be clinical narcissism. Uh, There is subclinical narcissism, where people don't have this to the point that it controls their life or the lives of others, but uh, what I'm talking about today is full-blown narcissism. And we're going to add something else to that that makes it even worse. Uh, This sure seems to me to be an accurate description of this guy we met in the book of Esther who's out to kill Mordecai and the Jews, and his name is Haman. He is also, to go along with his narcissistic tendencies, where he wants everybody to worship him and bow down to him and recognize him, uh, he is a man who is full of much pride. And he is willing to kill an entire race of people because one of them uh, disrespected him and didn't bow down the way that he thought they ought to bow down. And that guy's name is Mordecai. And he has a deep-seated hatred for Mordecai. Why? Well, according to the text, because when he walked by, everybody didn't get down and, and do obeisance and talk about how great he is because one man was standing, and it was Mordecai. Everybody else got down, but not Mordecai. Mordecai refused to treat him with the respect that I think he imagined in his own heart that he deserved. Haman has made his plan for the murder of Mordecai and the murder of Mordecai's people, the Jews. And I also want you to realize that God has made his plans uh, to do a preemptive strike, a turning of the tables in the middle of Haman's plans, and he has no idea what is coming. So I want to ask this question. Will we as human beings ever learn that God is in charge and even, uh, to quote a phrase out of the poem by Robert Burns, and even the best laid plans of mice and men are subjective in terms of who God is and they are subject to who God is, the eternal God, who is really in control of everything, and men are not. God's plan succeeds always without fail. Haman is about to fail in a great way, and he's going to take a great fall. 
And when he cries over the situation and runs home to his wife and to his wise men, his wife and the wise men will fail to be able to comfort this man because they see something spiritually that he doesn't see, that he can't focus on at this point, and it's because of his narcissism and his pride put together. Now I want to take the time to read this chapter. We're going to be looking at the whole thing because it's a, it's a story we don't want to break up. All right? And I don't mean story in the sense that it's made up. I mean an account in the sense that it is real. All right, so now we're going to see that Haman, who has been planning to kill Mordecai, as a matter of fact, if you remember last time, uh, the night before he met with his wise men and Zeresh, his wife, and they all said, well, if you don't like Mordecai, just kill the bum. And he said, okay, I will. And I'm going to set up a 75-foot-high pole to impale him on. Usually they would kill a person, then impale them, and then set them up for everybody to see. And he had these plans. First thing in the morning, tomorrow morning, when I go see the king, the very first thing out of my mouth is going to be a request. Let's just go ahead and kill Mordecai. And he knows the king will give it to him. And so that's what his plan is. Okay, what happened in the meantime? What's God been doing? Look at verse 1. During that night, the king could not sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They mean, you know, to kill him, to destroy him. The king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this deed. Then the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. There was nothing in the record book. Nobody could remember anything. It just happened not long ago. Nothing has been done for him. Now that's going to bother the king because Persian kings are known for doing very good things for people that did good things for them. And so here's the king. He couldn't sleep. It's uh, probably early in the morning now. He says, somebody go get the book and read to me all the things that I've done about my kingdom. And as they're reading, we run across this story about what Mordecai did. And the king doesn't hear anything about what a privilege it was to give him something back. And they said, nothing has been done. Now, I want you to be thinking of the fact that all this is fitting together to come to a point because God has intervened. Verse 4. So the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows, which he had prepared for him. Interesting. He laid his plans. He built the the pole, 75 feet high. He has every intention on getting that done right after breakfast here so he can go and have lunch with the king and the queen. And he's going to get it done quickly. He's got all his plans. Somebody went to all the work to set up the pole. And here he is to ask the king, as far as he's concerned, it's a done deal. Nothing's going to get in my way. Well, except God. And he said, who is in the court? In verse 4, we find out that Haman is out there. He is there to try to get the permission to kill Mordecai. Verse 5, the king's servant said to him, behold. And by the way, any time in the text, behold appears, God is trying to get your attention and say, look at this especially because I'm doing something here and you don't want to miss it. Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. To be, uh, let him come in. So Haman came in to the king and, and the king said to him, 
What is to be done for a man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, so the king couldn't hear him, who in the world, and I'm embellishing here, who in the world would the king want to honor right now more than me? More than the great Haman. He's thinking in his head, I'm pretty sure. Uh, there's only one person the king can be talking about, and now he's given me the privilege of saying how I should be honored. The king asks, uh, what do we do with somebody whom the king desires to honor? And he says, well, you can't be thinking about anybody but me. So in verse 7, we find out here's a man that can just rattle off five things just off the top of his head about what should be done for the man the king wants to honor. And you kind of have to get the idea that he's been thinking about this and he knows what to say. Verse 7, then Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn. And, the, and this would be the royal horse that we looked at a picture of one that would wear the crown, a stallion, the horse on which the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown has been placed. And the point is, liberals say they never did that, and here we have a statue from that period, and it shows they did do that, and the Bible's right again. And let the robe and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble princes and let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback throughout the city and proclaim before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. I can just imagine that Haman is imagining himself being in that position and what it's going to be like to have somebody leading him through the city on the king's royal stallion, proclaiming to everybody, this is how the king treats those that he really likes. And he laid it all out. And in verse 10, Then the king said to Haman, Take quickly the robes and the horse that you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, oh man, who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not fall short in anything of all that you have said. Now you're thinking, why didn't I swallow my pride and say a little bit less, like a handshake out in the front? So Haman took the robe and the horse and arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried home, mourning. The guy's weeping, he's crying with his head covered. Haman recounted to Zeresh, his wife, and to all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then the wise men and Zeresh, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai before you, if, I'm sorry, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came, and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now, this is not the way he wanted to go to the banquet. This is not what he wanted to do. He didn't want to go home and cry uh, you know, to his friends and his wife. He wanted by this time to be killing Mordecai, having him hung up on that impaling pole, and then he could happily go to drink and eat with the king and the queen. Well, he's going to eat with the king and the queen all right, but there's nothing happy that's going to end up happening here. Let's look at it. Verses 1 to 9. We learn this, that men make plans. You can add women in there too. We all do it. Men and women make plans, but God overrules them all for his own will to be accomplished. It is not God's will that Mordecai 
end up on the impaling pole. And as much as Haman is powerful and thinks he is sovereign and thinks that he is the greatest man in the kingdom just short of the king, it is not going to happen the way he wants. Men make plans, but God overrules those plans. God does a preemptive strike, an end around, and, and surprises everybody. And what we want doesn't always happen. Maybe you've caught yourself sometime and you had a plan to go in early and talk to your boss about work. But as soon as he sees you or sees she sees you, uh, they launch into something that they have been thinking about. And uh, they get right at that. And well, this is what Haman was walking into that morning. He thought, I'm going to have the first word with the king. First of all, there's protocol. You don't just walk in there and start blabbing about something. He's the king. Uh, you'll have to be invited to speak, but that's the first thing I'm going to talk about. Well, he doesn't know that the king had a bad night. He doesn't know the king uh, was read a story and the king is going to do something about it that day. He has no idea any of that's going to happen. He never, he never dreamed in his wildest dreams that the king wouldn't be able to sleep that night and that he would read a story about the guy he wants to kill. Now he's listening, and the king jumps in. Oh, hey, I'm glad you're here. He never has a chance to say a word, never has a chance to butt in and say, hey, oh, by the way, king, I'd like to kill the guy. That, you know, Can I do that right after he gets off the horse? <laughs> it's not going to happen. Well, uh, I've had the, the case where I've gone into a boss to talk about something, something else was on their mind. I never did get to bring up what I wanted. Well, this is where Haman's at, and he's walking into this little trap God has set for him this morning. Haman's plans were to walk, uh, in, talk to walk into the king's presence, talk the first thing in the morning about what he wants, to have Mordecai murdered before he takes his honored place with the queen and the banquet and the king at noon. He is in the place bright and early to carry out his deed. Now, as we should do, uh, we look to the book of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19 and verse 21. There's some people of those days that should have read this. Proverbs 19, 21. Many plans are in the man's heart, but the counsel of Yahweh will stand. We have all kinds of plans, but we need to know this. We can make plans to do something. We can make plans to move ahead with a project or whatever it is. And if it's not God's intention that that happen, you're in trouble. Because God will always win. God's plan will always uh, come before ours. So in verse 1, the banquet's over. Haman's gone home. And he's made plans to kill Mordecai with his friends. And that night, before the second banquet, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is tossing and turning on his bed. Probably had the best bed in the kingdom, but he's tossing and turning. And he cannot fall asleep. No matter what he tries, he can't fall asleep. So he decides to have one of the servants read to him from what is called, literally in the Hebrew text, the book of remembrance of the deeds of the days. In other words, that's the official record of all the things the king has done and the king's business, and so he wants those read. Now, uh, history has, has discovered and archaeology has discovered they had 12 volumes of these books. So imagine this. The king can't sleep. He says, Read to me from the royal books. You know, I'd like to hear about the great things I've done, perhaps. But anyway, this guy grabs one of the volumes of the book, probably in a scroll form, and there are 12 of them. But this is the one that he grabs. Out of all 12, what are the chances, 1 in 12, that he'd grab this one? And the volume that he read, uh, he just happened to pick the one 
that had the account of what Mordecai recently did when he saved the life of the king. Now, we remember reading that. We remember studying that, and we thought, hey, wait a minute. Uh, maybe Mordecai is thinking about everybody else that does something good for the king. Something very good is done for them, and nothing happened, we said to ourselves. Let's learn to wait. Let's learn to wait on God. God knows that nothing happened. My reward is in heaven. That's usually how we handle it when we don't get recognition for something. My reward is in heaven, so I'll just wait for that. Maybe God's going to wait and reward me there, so don't worry about it. Let it go. And so Mordecai, for whatever reason, let it go. He didn't say anything. He didn't nudge one of his friends and say, hey, could you drop a word somewhere that it gets to the king? He didn't do anything for me when I saved his life. None of that happened. But the king's reading it. It must have taken all night because... It's already going to be time early in the morning for him to say, who's out in the court right now? Well, while reading, they found the entry of Mordecai's report against Big Thana and Teresh, people that also worked around the king. Uh, we think probably the guard to his bedroom, uh, who were plotting to kill Ahasuerus. They were the king's doorkeepers. Uh, this piqued the king's interest about what honor or dignity had been done for Mordecai because of his care for the king. See, he didn't hear that part of the, uh, of the account because it's not in there, because nothing was done. Persian kings, according to the ancient historian Herodotus, were known for keeping clear records of those who did special acts for the king. And the kings were very good. Persian kings were excellent at honoring the people that took care of them and did good things for them. So this is going to bother this Persian king. We're, we're remiss here. We should have done something. Why wasn't something done? And it just so happens that this deed had not been rewarded at all. Nothing. King didn't even send a thank you scroll to Mordecai. Nothing has been done for him. So the first thing on his mind that morning is different than what Haman has on his mind, and that is, I'm going to right this wrong that has been caused by this oversight, and that's what's on his mind. He asked, who is in the court? And it just so happens Haman's already there. We know why he's there. The king doesn't. And I don't think the king cares at this point. He's already arrived there, so he can have Mordecai killed, you know, probably right after breakfast there. And he can go on his way and enjoy the rest of his day and enjoy drinking with the king and queen. Well, he wants Mordecai killed as soon as possible. The impaling pole is already complete and ready to go. You can just hear Haman talking to Zeresh and his wise men. I am going to take care of this guy first thing in the morning, and no one's going to stop me. God in heaven quietly said, really? That's what you're going to do, huh? You laid your plans out. You got it all planned out. You think you know what you're doing? Well, just go ahead. Let's see how this plays out. Verse 5, behold, God interjects. This is what I'm doing. It seems to me to indicate in the Bible that we need to pay special attention. God is doing something, even though in this book his name is not mentioned. It's like holding up a literary sign and saying, what you see here, pay attention to. Well, look who happens to be there already. Haman. Ahasuerus commands him to be brought in. The king always gets to speak first. If you go through uh, court protocol, you know that. You don't just run into the presence of the king and start mouthing off about something. So he didn't say anything. He waited. You just don't barge in without acknowledging uh, the king first. You don't just run in with your stuff. And by the way, 
uh, that's a good idea for us when we go to God in prayer. Sometimes we just run in and forget who we're talking to and maybe he has something he wants to say to us and listen. Well, anyway, in verse 6, the king asks him what should be done for the man that the king wants to honor. Haman reasons to himself and concludes very quickly, mind you, that he must be a man that Xerxes wants to honor. And he says, that guy is me. He's talking about me. Oh, this is going to be a great surprise for me. <laughs> it's going to be a great surprise for him in more ways than one. Who else could he possibly want to honor more than me, Haman said. Now we have our pride mixed with our narcissism, and it's a, it's a deadly cocktail that we don't want to drink. In verse 7, so now we know that Haman is dreaming up how he would like to be honored. And he says these five things, okay? Ahasuerus should, number one, clothe the man in a royal robe the king has worn. That's pretty presumptuous, okay? Go to the king's closet, find a, a royal robe that he's worn, and put it on this man. Number two, let him ride a royal horse that the king has ridden one with a royal crown on his head. We don't want anybody to miss what this horse is all about and what's going on here. And we saw a representation of that. Thirdly, let this be accomplished by one of the king's most noble princes. You know what? He's going to find out I'm at least one of the king's most noble princes. But for this guy, that's not good enough. Unless he's at the top, it's never good enough. This is a guy that walks through crowds of people. They all bow down. They all honor him except one measly man. And it ruins his day. He even tells his friends, I've got everything I could possibly want. But until I deal with this one, this one fly in the ointment, I am not going to be happy. And so it's ruining his life. Number four, let that noble parade the man through the city square. It's got to be public. Number five, let that noble cry out, Thus it will be done to the man the king desires to honor. And my big question is, well, what about a maple donut to go along with this little party? Dr. Martin said this, and I quote, Egotistical Haman is beside himself with joy and enthusiasm, thinking he was the one to be honored, end quote. He has a plan for the man to be seen as precious to the king, one who is highly esteemed. He has a lust for respect and honor and to be loved by all because he's a pathologically, accurately uh, clinical uh, narcissist. Haman designed this to practically be a declaration that he was headed for kingship. That's why he wants the royal, the royal stallion. That's why he wants the royal robes. That's why he wants not just any old noble to lead him through town, but the greatest of the nobles. And he can't lead himself, he thought. Somebody will have to do it. In verses 10 to 13, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to, and he exalts the humble. James chapter 4 and verse 6. It says, but he gives greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud. Go ahead and be proud. God's opposed to you. That's what it says but gives grace to the humble. We choose to be humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, the devil certainly has a hold of Haman at this point. In Proverbs 16.5, it says this, Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. And that's why we want to be those who are humble.
Peter said to the, the young men in his, in his teaching of how the church should be, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. It's too bad this man was not humble enough to see what the God of heaven had to say. By the way, God's word applies to unbelievers and believers. Just because they don't know the word of God does not mean they will not be held accountable to the word of God. It applies to unbelievers as well as believers. It applies to Haman. In verse 10, now Haman gets the worst news possible for him. The king has commanded him to do this for his, his arch rival, his enemy, that scum of the earth, Mordecai. The man he hates with a great hatred, the one who he was there to see impaled on a 75-foot impaling pole. Now he must exalt the one Jew that he despises the most in the world. He didn't see that coming. When he had his plans made and he was walking in, Mr. Powerful Pants, it did not work out the way he thought it would work out. Apparently, Ahasuerus uh, had never even asked who the people were that Haman wanted to slaughter and got permission to annihilate, but he does know that Mordecai is a Jew. He does not know his queen is a Jew. Haman had violated what we learn in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Let's just throw that in there uh, so we know it as well. Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said of you, come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. You know what? Luke picks that up in chapter 14, uh, basically verses 10 and 11, where he says the same thing. When you're invited to a banquet, sit at the last place, so that if you sit somewhere higher and you shouldn't be there, you don't have to be embarrassed because they ask you, would you please move to a lower space so we can give it to this other person? Jesus said, sit in the low place. Take the humble place. And if there's any honor that needs to be done to you, uh, let, let the person that put on the banquet come and say, no, my friend, I need to move you up a little bit. Haman started at the top, and he has no idea how far down he is going to go. In verse 11, Haman did uh, what he had suggested for Mordecai at the command of the king. I'm sure he's wishing he hadn't have done that much. It doesn't faze him that he also is considered by the king to be one of the most noble of the king's men. It's not good enough. Narcissism and hubris or pride blind one completely from what's going on. In verse 12, Mordecai goes back to work, but Haman, uh, mortified in, in the, and in mourning, he's, he's mad, he's pouting, he's crying, with his head down and covered, he goes home to commiserate with his wife Zeresh, and his friends, and his wise men. And in verse 13, Haman tells the story to Zeresh, his friends, and, and the wise men. And the wise men and Zeresh, his own wife, see a supernatural influence going on in this event, and they prophesy about what it means. <laughs> That's incredible. We haven't heard anything from any believer anywhere in this book about the prophecies of God, about the word of God. We haven't seen them pray. And here's some pagan people whom God uses to see something spiritual in an event that they haven't even seen yet. 
And they said, this means he will fail to cause a fall for Mordecai. The word fall is a key teaching tool in this book. In its various forms, it occurs seven times in this little book of Esther. Fall can indicate being dropped from a higher to a lower position. God has foreshadowed the rise of Mordecai with the king's robes and riding on the king's horse. And he also has foretold the fall of Haman through his being humiliated when he thought he was going to be the victor. Dr. Brenneman pointed out that once Martin Luther, uh, we're talking about the reformer Martin Luther, asked what argument he used to, pr to prove the Bible is true. And Luther simply replied, the Jews. God takes care of his people. No matter who's trying to wipe them out, no matter who wants to kill them, they always make it through with a remnant. And they will to the end of our age as well. In verse 14, God moves his program ahead on his perfect timetable. I don't think he had as much time at home to commiserate with his friends and his wise men and his wife. Next thing you know, right out of the, right out of the uh, basket comes another thing to deal with. While his conversation is still going on with his wife and his wise men, God steps in and advances his will for Haman's life. Time to go to the banquet. Do you see anything there? Well, let me share this with you, okay? Haman makes a plan. This is what I'm going to do to these people. I'm going to teach them a lesson, and I'm going to teach Mordecai a lesson, and I'm going to hang him on this pole. First thing in the morning, he gets there to the king's palace, and, and the king's actually looking for him. So he, he says, come on in. So he comes on in, and he, and he wants to say something, but the king uh, just interrupts right away. Now, there's a man in a hurry to do wrong, and he was pushing everything forward. He just goes as fast as he can. <laughs> you think God can't do that? So I'm at home now. I'm commiserating with everybody. I just heard what my wife said as a prophecy against me. And, and while I'm just trying to get that, you know, rolled over in my mind, right then and there, the eunuchs show up. It's time to go to the banquet. And I see God leading a man who is prideful, who made plans against God and planned something evil. And I see God now hurry, scurry, get Haman to where He's going to find the end of his days. This is going to be the worst banquet of his life. And we will talk about that next time we're together. Men will not be able to set aside the plan of God or stop him from keeping his promises. If you can believe that all this stuff just happened to have happened, then you could be also the kind of person who can believe in evolution. I can't believe this. It's got to be of God. It has to be. So here's some things I want us to take away from this. Number one, humility is desirable to God, but our pride is the object of his discipline. There are two sins that God will go after in our life if we commit them. One is rebellion, and the other one is pride. And when God sees that in us, he sees the marks of Satan, who he threw out of, out of his position in heaven, because it was out of rebellion and pride that God had to cast Satan out of his position. God doesn't like it, so we should choose humility. Secondly, 
Men talk all the time. Men talk and don't do. God talks, and it is always done. And then Proverbs 18.12. I mean Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. In other words, it's prideful and lifted up. But humility goes before honor. Which do we choose? And then, because God is in control and loves us, we will strive to honor our God and serve him above all others. I wanted to end with a verse out of the book of Deuteronomy that I think is one of the great verses about the sovereignty of God. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God is speaking, and he says this, See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. That's a merism. You see it? Death and life, and God is saying, I give life, I, I give death. And that means everything is included in between that. Everything in life. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And get this, and there is no one, no one, who can deliver from my hand. Naaman, short of a miraculous repentance, will not be released from the hand of God. That's the God we serve, and he's in control. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we see somebody who is truly narcissistic or full of pride and hubris, it sickens us inside. But the big issue is we always have trouble seeing those things in ourselves. And I pray that we would examine our own hearts before you about our humility and where we're at with that. And also, would we also get help from you, Father, to examine do we believe in your sovereignty? Do we believe that you really are in control? Do we believe that we can talk all we want, but unless you're in something, it will come to nothing? Also, Lord, we cannot stand against you because our counsel, if it goes against yours, will be the counsel that fails. We want to thank you for the lessons that we're learning from this wicked man, Haman, who didn't do it right, and from a man named Mordecai, and a beautiful young lady who is also beautiful on the outside, who has a heart for God. May we be like them. And I ask it in your precious and holy name. For your honor and glory and for your namesake only. Amen. you please rise and open your hymnal to 465. We will close by singing In His Time.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, how we can see how you take care of those who love you, um, who are committed to you. Um, we would ask that for us, Lord. We would pray that um, we would be humble and live lives that are pleasing to you. Um, I pray that you'd be with us as we go throughout this week, that the things we do will be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm. 